From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Forty Senate Democrats have signed on to a bill that would block President Trump's executive order, creating a new classification of federal employees. Michigan Senator Gary Peters introduced the bill Wednesday. Federal Times reports the bill would stop the Schedule F classification the president's executive order created October 21st. Basil Parker is the White House's nominee to become the next uh, federal chief information officer. If the Senate confirms him, he'll move to the Office of Management and Budget from the Office of Personnel Management. He's chief of staff there now. Next, Gov reports Parker's been at OPM since April 2018. The executive director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Brandon Wales, will take over as acting director for now. President Trump fired the former director, Chris Krebs, on Twitter Tuesday. Politico reports says the deputy director, Matthew Travis, resigned after Trump fired Krebs. President-elect Joe Biden has announced what he calls the Biden plan to rebuild U.S. supply chains. Its components indicate he's likely to shift priorities from the Trump administration in information technology. Gordon Bitko is senior vice president of policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. He's former chief information officer of the FBI. Gordon, welcome back. It's nice to see you. One of the areas that, it, that you and your colleagues at ITI uh, are previewing is supply chain. What are the moves that you expect to see supply chain-wise in the new administration? Francis, first, thanks for having me back. It's always great to be on the show to talk with your, with your viewers. The Biden Build Back Better plan definitely talks about the importance of Buy America, of investing in American innovation, of encouraging American companies, and of, and of reshoring supply chain. It highlights the challenges from the pandemic. That's absolutely 100% correct. What we'd really like to see the Biden administration be doing is focusing on competitiveness of American companies as the way to get to that. In other words, policies that really invest in those technologies that are critical for the U.S. to continue to be a world leader and to drive towards giving those companies advantages in, in what is still a global marketplace. You make an interesting distinction in this work, and uh, you write, seeking broad-based resilience rather than pure self-sufficiency, um, writing about uh, President-elect Biden's plan. That strikes me as profound because it doesn't indicate that we need to have everything within our borders, just within the borders of countries maybe that are friendly to us. Am I reading that right? Absolutely, Francis. Well, I, I think that, that we all learned some hard lessons during the pandemic about the importance of resiliency, but that doesn't mean that the best answer is everything has to be reshored and, and brought back here. That's really going to be incredibly expensive and time-consuming and inefficient. At the same time, the, the global supply chain is interconnected. We have allied countries, friendly countries, places where a lot of key technology is built, assembled, manufactured today, and we should be working with them and encouraging American companies to work with them as well. I think that that's a, a really successful path forward. The alternative of, of what's, what's been done in a lot of the, the piecemeal policies of the past are these very rigid approaches, banning particular countries, banning particular products. The risk is high with those. There's no doubt we need to take corrective action. But those really rigid policies make it very difficult for industry and government to work together to really ensure American companies can be as competitive as they need to be. You have a section in this preview, Gordon, about IT modernization. And I think the trajectory that the government's been on for 
a long time, decade or more, on IT modernization is uh, important to focus on. Do you see a refocus, uh, uh, an acceleration, a change in priorities? What do you see moving forward regarding IT modernization in particular, Gordon? I think there's a couple of main points I want to draw on. One is the modernization that did happen really was essential for the government to be able to function at the level that it has during the pandemic. The fact that so many agencies were able to keep going at the level they were was due to investments that they've made in modernization. At the same time, we also saw lots of challenges. You and I have talked about those and lots of other people have as well in the past. The failures of state unemployment insurance systems are unfortunately a really, really good example. So I think that what we were looking for is, as the Biden administration is talking about more services being delivered by government, that there has to be a renewed emphasis on doing those things through IT modernization. It's also a great way to think about improving the security of those legacy systems and to be thinking about what are the highest risk products and services, and how should we think about supply chain risk in those products as well? The issue, though, as always, is paying for them, Gordon. And you're right, it seems likely the window for considerable investment in federal government IT systems is opening. That may be true of the Biden-Harris administration. Is it necessarily true of Congress, given that the composition of Congress didn't change dramatically that much on Election Day? I think, Francis, there is a consensus in Congress about the importance of government functioning effectively. And a lot of these legacy systems that are still out there, people realize that they don't. And unfortunately, who suffers when that happens is American citizens. It's consumers of those services who can't get what they need. So, so I think there are going to be opportunities to invest smartly and appropriately. It's not as though we anticipate that there's going to be an open spigot and no accountability, and, and nobody wants that. But we do think that there are really clear needs and opportunities to make some smart targeted investments. There's a potential impact here on industry, Gordon, and you and your colleagues, right? The president-elect would likely restore the fair pay and safe workplace executive order uh, that the Obama-Biden administration instituted. President Trump uh, rescinded that executive order. And a lot of people expect that a lot of executive orders that President Trump rescinded will come back in the early stages of the Biden administration. What's the potential impact on the industry that serves government if that executive order comes back? Well, I, I think that those things, they, they will be impactful. But actually, the one that I think is going to be most impactful is, is actually a Trump executive order, the 13950 on uh, racial discrimination, and that uh, we're, we're actually hoping that the Biden administration will will rescind that because that has definitely had a chilling effect on many companies who have workforce diversity as a really important priority for themselves. And if they're doing business with the government, they're just they're 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 right now under this cloud of not being able to continue that training, unfortunately. And that that is, as I said, having a chilling impact. About 30 seconds left, Gordon. It also strikes me that it's not just the chilling impact, it's the uncertainty of what it really means because the administration hasn't made that clear to vendors, has it? It has not. And unfortunately, uh, the executive order is scheduled to go into effect for government contractors this weekend. If you look at the 60-day timeline from when it was signed, uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty. The Department of Labor has provided some guidance, but it's not, it's not clear exactly what that's going to mean still. And uh, so we are, like I said, hoping that the Biden administration, who has made a priority of addressing systemic racism, will take, take this on and rescind it relatively quickly. Gordon Bitko, thank you very much. Great to have you on as always.
Thanks again, Francis. Up next, stopping the Jenga game for combatant commanders. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the urgency to cut the demand signal for hardware and personnel. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The National Defense Strategy lists rebuilding the readiness of the military as one of its key components. One suggestion is moving combatant commanders away from a Jenga model where forces are moved in and out without a lot of consideration for the risks of each move. Mackenzie Eaglin's resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. All right, you got me with the Jenga analogy. I didn't know anybody still played that game, Mackenzie, although I guess as a result of uh, the quarantine, everybody's playing every game there is. You wrote this piece a couple of weeks ago, and I note that there are a number of references in here as to what Secretary Esper should do or should not do. We don't have one of those anymore, so what does that mean moving forward for the things that you're suggesting here? It means that the incoming administration has a long to-do list based not just on this article but other issues as well. And one of the first tasks we're going to need to undertake uh, clearly is to relook the national defense strategy and reaffirm or change it as needed to prioritize the threats. But really uh, related to that is a global roles and missions review for all of the military services to find out where there's duplication, where there can be consolidation, where there's overlap, and, and you know the deployment overall of forces and what needs to be changed or not. I think the Biden administration will also eventually get to a potential review of Goldwater Nichols because that's really the heart of the matter here is, uh, you know, all the goodness for all the jointness and, and helpful uh, byproducts of that legislation. I think now we're starting to see some of the consequences and it's time for a relook decades later. Uh, it is useful that you have great detail in this piece on in War on the Rocks and one of the subheads, one of the sections is titled Reining in Sprawling Mini Mini Pentagons, easy for me to say, and you, you ask for consideration of two points. Managing the expansion of the combatant commanders, including staff and budgets, you note, and curbing combatant commanders' unbounded demands for U.S. forces. To the second point, Mackenzie, that's not entirely up to the combatant commanders, is it? That's also up to the threat landscape. That's absolutely right. So, you know, and there also needs to be signaling from leadership at the Pentagon that the goal here isn't to eliminate all risk. Zero risk is one of the reasons uh, that there's this perception that commanders need forces for everything below the you know level of conflict for presence missions around the globe each day. And it's wearing out man and machine too quickly during a time when the department needs to reorient towards this longer term competition with China in particular. Uh, so they. There, there's no incentive right now for combatant commanders to do that. So then you have to ask them yourself, well, why, uh, why do they think the perception of zero risk is reality? And then what are the tasks and what's associated with it in the theater or the campaign or the operational concept plans that's driving all of this work? Um, you write uh, very extensively with data about the expansion that's gone on to the first point that you make there. Um, the, and you referenced the 2013 cuts that Secretary Hagel at the time announced where he was going to cut the, the, the OSD billets 20%. That doesn't seem to have gone very far or very well. 
Uh, and and it, it indicates to me that cutting at the Pentagon traditionally is very difficult, isn't it? It is very difficult, and they often wind up cutting the wrong things, right? So uh, Joint Forces Command went away uh, when Secretary, uh, at the time, Jim Mattis was running it. And then it turns out in 2018 with the new defense strategy, the Pentagon gave away all of its brain power to do joint warfighting concept development, exactly what is needed right now. And one of the reasons it still hasn't been released uh, within the Department of Defense. Uh, but really, yeah, here I'm focusing on the regional combatant commanders and their unyielding demand for presence. I mean, there is a budgetary issue and a manpower issue that uh, these commands staff maybe 45,000 people uh, domestically and overseas, and that warrants its own scrub. Uh, they are sprawling many, uh, many Pentagons as opposed to lean warfighting headquarters, as Arnold Conaro called it. Um, but really, it's about the incentive structure for their demand and it, how it does not match or support forces and what they need right now, which is to rebuild readiness and focus on innovation for the long-term competition. Uh, all right, take me to Jenga and how that fits with this uh, narrative, Mackenzie. So, I, you know, I came up with that idea because I was reading, again, uh, the new Air Force Chief of Staff's uh, vision, you know, accelerate change or lose. And in it, he talks about sharing risk better between and among the services and combatant commanders. Uh, again, here, the heart of the matter is getting risk to zero and why, why that perception exists. And General Brown talks about how uh, you know, currently, you know, he just came as uh, head of Pacific Command before he became the chief, as you know. And he talks about, from I think his perspective in Asia, that, you know, right now we just kind of plug in and pull out forces all around the world without any sense of whether uh, one request for forces over here is hurting another service over there or how the need to do something now might be actually harming the five-year budget plan for how the Department of Defense um, plans and programs its future, as you know, over five years. And he, so I basically call it a global Jenga model that really doesn't seem to have any broader rhyme or reason, and that it, this really falls on the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, that he needs to do a better job of uh, ensuring that, you know, again, we're not wearing out man and machine too quickly, that the use of one service isn't going to harm another service, and that the need to do something now in one budget year isn't going to hurt something five years later for that same service. Mackenzie Eaglin, thanks very much for coming on. Always enjoy having you. My pleasure. Thanks. Up next, scaling agile practices from software to the entire government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the unexpected places where agility pays off. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Welcome back. Agile practices aren't just for software development anymore. The National Academy of Public Administration has a new list of agile principles and recommendations for bringing them to every aspect of government. Ed DeSev is head of the Agile Government Center from the National Academy of Public Administration and the IBM Center for the Business of Government. He's former deputy director for management at OMB. Ed, welcome. It is great to see you again. How did you make this connection between the agile principles that software developers use and the management sphere in the government? About a year ago, I sat down with NAPA's president, Terry Gurton, and we talked about many of the things that I've practiced over the years. 
And we tried together to find a common ground, a common theme or framework. When I saw the Agile principles that had been used and are continuing to be used in software development, it struck a chord with me. I realized, and others um, have, have come to the same conclusion, that Agile principles can inform management, not just software development. And so I began trying to develop. I had a rule that no more than 10, if Moses could do it in 10, I can do it in 10. No more than 10 principles were going to be out there. And you have those 10 listed, and they are mission metrics for success, customer-driven behavior, external network speed, cross-functional teams, innovation, persistence, evidence-informed solutions, and organizational leaders. You get to four recommendations that I want to talk about in the time that we have, Ed. And the first one of those is analyzing your organization to, to determine its strengths and weaknesses. Where do people usually go wrong in this kind of skills inventory that you're talking about? Well, what happens, especially if you're a new manager coming into a new organization or a manager coming into a new job, one of the things that they often miss is an understanding of what's going on in their own organization. Sometimes they just assume they know it because they've been around long enough. Other times they're, they're frightened to ask hard questions. You have to start by asking hard questions. How are we doing? How are we communicating? Is our strategy effective? Do we have good external relationships? All these kinds of questions have to be asked very carefully so you can begin to understand where to start from in implementing agile principles or any other management techniques you may use. It strikes me that leaders have better metrics and better data than they've ever had though at being able to get the real answer to that question, how are we doing? Is that fair, Ed? I think that's right. Uh, I, I know the employee viewpoint survey wasn't there when I started some years ago, I think it's a very helpful tool. I think reports from GAO or other helpful tools. I have some um, analytic techniques of my own that I use and have uh, given to other people and they found helpful. Whatever you use, try to get the best view you can of what's going on in your organization and how it's being perceived outside. The second recommendation that you make in this work, Ed, is creating or leveraging a burning platform, <clears throat> excuse me, to drive change. That's scary though, not just for rank and file employees, but for some leaders in a government organization, isn't it, Ed? Well, it's scary, but unfortunately, often you find yourself standing on a burning platform. Um, I think President Obama and Vice President Biden, when they came into office, had a burning platform of the economy. Um, certainly, Vice President Biden, now President-elect, I like using that, President-elect Biden, um, has identified four or five things. Primary among them are COVID and the economy itself, which create a significant burning platform. I stole the, the idea of the burning platform from John Cotter. Uh, I didn't create it. I just, I, I always uh, reference Cotter when I talk about it. But what you have to understand is what your mission is and what the challenges to achieving your mission are. Those are the two things. He also suggests building a guiding coalition. But whatever it is, understand what you're supposed to be doing from your organization. Understand how you're going to do it in terms of uh, listening to people around you. The third recommendation that you make, Ed, is considering Agile at all levels of government, including projects, programs, and the whole of government. You want this from the top all the way to the bottom, it sounds like. 
Well, it's even better than that because we also have been talking to people in the World Economic Forum who use Agile to think about recommendations and recommendations for regulation. We've been talking to others about how to use Agile in policy development, specifically the OECD. We also know that it's easy to think about it in terms of program implementation. So in the three major tasks of government, as well as at local levels, as well as at state levels, as well as at program levels, it's a set of tools. It's like my home repair kit. If you can't fix it with WD-40, a crescent wrench, a screwdriver, and a hammer, uh, and duct tape, then I probably can't fix it. So this is the duct tape. Natural principles are the duct tape of government. I was really afraid you weren't going to mention the duct tape there at the end, Ed. I'm glad you did. The final recommendation is analyzing results in line with established metrics and using evidence to inform decisions. Thanks to the Evidence Act, this is almost a must now in government, isn't it? Well, a lot of things are a must. Uh, the Government Performance Results Act was a must, and it took it more than 25 years to find its way into the interstices, into the webs of government management. I think it's there now, I think it's like fluoride. It's in the water now and makes our teeth better. Um, but it's going to take time for evidence to be routinely used, for people to default to using evidence as their primary mechanism for informing what's going on. There's too much tradition of, well, we've always done it this way. Well, you've always done it this way. Well, what have the results been from doing it that way? So yes, that's the fourth recommendation we're using Agile principles. Ed DeSev, thank you very much. It's great to have you back on the program. Always a pleasure, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.